Hello and welcome to UK Life Abroad. For this episode, we'll have to put on our lawyer hats as we'll be exploring important anti-corruption legislation across the world and in Ukraine. What do a Russian lawyer, an American investment banker and the collapse of the Soviet Union have to do with fighting global corruption in the 21st century? This and more up next on Zakardoni Ukrainsi, the podcast for all things Ukrainian. Alexa, do you want to start us off? So our story starts in 1972 with the birth of Sergei Magnitsky in Odessa, Ukraine. Uh, not much is publicized about his early life, but we know that his family moved back to its ancestral homeland in Russia and settled in Moscow. In Moscow, Magnitsky attended the prestigious Plekhanov Russian University of Economics, where he completed his law degree specializing in finance in 1993. So he grew up during the glories of the collapse of the Soviet Union and Russia's experiment with capitalism. So he had a very interesting um, childhood because of this. In 1995, he joined Firestone Duncan, a British-based consultancy company which specialised in tax and audit. There he was assigned to work with a company called Hermitage Capital Management, which was an investment and asset fund management company specialising in Russian markets. The company was headquartered in Guernsey, which is a British Channel Island off the coast of France. Guernsey is considered by many to be a tax haven due to its 0% corporate tax rate. <laughs> 0%? Not even trying to be like... <laughs> where they're like, oh, it's 23%, but the tax loopholes like bring it down to like 5%. It's just like, no, 0%. <laughs> so Hermitage Capital was an interesting company. They were one of the, f- uh, one of the early adopters of activist investors so what they would do is is they would invest into companies and try and root out corporate corruption and try and improve management practices to bring these companies more into line with western standards and thus make them um, eligible both for western funding and loans and also for westerners to invest into these companies Um, due to this hermitage capital ruffled the feathers of many high-ranking figures of the russian establishment by 2005 the company Uh, started to be attacked by the Russian government itself. In 2005, co-founder of Hermitage Capital, Bill Browder, was expelled from Russia due to him being classified as a national threat. This forced him to run the company from abroad. On the 4th of June 2007, the company's headquarters in Moscow were raided by the Russian tax police. Along with the offices of Firestone Duncan, where Magnitsky worked. The Russian tax police claimed that the raids were due to unpaid taxes by one of the companies that Hermitage Capital managed, Kamaya. What's interesting is is that earlier that same week or month, um, Hermitage Capital received a letter from the Russian tax service stating that Kamaya had in fact overpaid its taxes and was due for a refund. The police during this raid stole many documents relating to Kamaya and also other companies that Hermitage Capital managed. This also included company stamps, which is how modern-day companies sign documents as independent entities. In late October, Bill Browder received information from a St. Petersburg court that uh, one of the companies that Hermitage Capital managed had a judgment issued against it for unpaid taxes. 
This was one of the companies that the Russian tax police had stolen files on and the company seal. In response to this, Magnitsky, who was assigned from Firestone Duncan to assist Hermitage Capital, was given the task of investigating why this was happening. So it's interesting what you mentioned around Hermitage Capital and their, the way that they invested in a lot of uh, the privatization elements of Eastern European finances, particularly in Russia. And one of the things that they were doing, or they were the first to do actually in the world, was do almost a theft analysis. So with Gazprom, as a good example, a, a large, large company in Russia, uh, uh, Bill Browder took, undertook a series of interviews with ex-employees um, and actually end up finding uh, illegally acquired databases in bazaars in, yeah, in <laughs> Moscow um, to actually confirm that basically Gazprom executives were stealing the equivalent of Kuwait's amount of oil reserve. And what was fascinating about that was that in the end, that was only less, accounted for less than 10% of the reserves of Gazprom. So because of that, everyone, no one was investing in Gazprom at the time, particularly because they were saying, well, it must all be being stolen. But in the fact, because of how much value there was, the in investing in it made a lot of sense. And what was interesting after that um, all became public. So he actually put, uh, took that information to the media, in the Western media. And once that all became public, uh, Vladimir Putin actually came in to Gazprom and got rid of the CEO and appointed someone new. Um, and that pattern actually happened more than once. So there was this pattern of, um, I guess, uh, hermitage capital going through to finding a different industry, understanding or trying to uncover the levels of corruption that were happening in that industry, and then potentially publicizing that, and in which case then the government would step in and Putin would step in to try and then stamp some of that out. Now, although the more blatant some, excesses of corruption. Well, and, and so what was interesting about that was the comment was that it was, don't steal assets. But, you know, revenue is, is fine type thing. So like, <laughs> there was this really unusual kind of, you know, implication that it was the, you know, there was at least some attempt to kind of um, a balance of power shifting because the oligarchs had so much power early on in, in Putin's presidency that he actually needed to acquire some power back by actually putting them in their place or actually, you know, trying to cut away their ability to, to run through, th uh, to have that resource. So it all goes back to those like runaway capitalism days of early 90s Russia. Yeah, and what I think is really important about that is um, it's very easy as a initially to look at this situation and the entire story we're going to cover today and think, well, you know, I guess these, this person wasn't very popular with the government and wasn't popular with Vladimir Putin. He was uncovering corruption, of course, that they didn't like him. Or, or how, you know, but then you have to remember that you know, Hermitage Capital lasted for a long period, almost 10 years, you know, a little bit over 10 years in Russia, and there was a kind of situation where two unlikely sides, you know, Putin's government and Hermitage Capital, actually were serving each other's interests in a way where th there was this ability for him to consolidate his power, Putin, by actually fighting corruption, which, you know, today yeah. sounds a bit ludicrous and, and <laughs> that seems a bit counterintuitive. But. So this takes us to 2008 uh, when Magnitsky begins his investigation on behalf of Hermitage Capital and he uncovers the largest tax fraud in Russian history, which was close to $230 million um, and it involved Russian tax officials in, that were involved in this fraud. So as Alexa mentioned, part of uh, where this scandal started was a raid um, and the raid on the Hermitage Capital Company basically stole official documents for the for the companies and also stole their seals to allow the people who had the seals to actually represent the company and 
take money away. And what the fraud actually was, and I think that's an important thing to cover here, was that on the 24th of December, on Christmas Eve, when no one would really be looking, uh, these particular thieves went to the tax office and uh, they actually requested for a complete refund of the taxes for the company. Uh, so this amounted to uh, $230 million, million dollars, as right? you said, Nathan. Yeah, so $230 million. So what happened was, is yeah. then um, Hermitage Capital received a letter from the government saying that we've refunded your tax return and you'll have to pay your taxes soon. And this like set off alarm bells saying, like, how could they retur- like refund these taxes that we've paid without- and we don't know about it? And so Magnitsky goes in and he eventually finds someone in this small local court that tells him this is the company that we've refunded. And from the court, he was able to trace the money into some obscure Russian bank account. And within, that mo- within two days of that money being put into that obscure Russian bank account, it had been wiped from Russia's financial system. And I think it's also quite imp- uh, important that retrospectively, now looking at this situation well over 10 years ago now, um, that the Panama Papers scandal happened on the other side of the world more recently. Um, and that actually uncovered that uh, definitely some of the funds and proceeds from this $230 million were received by Vladimir Putin and his uh, appointees that are known to be the appointees that control his personal fortune. So there is obviously, um, this was something that was conducted at quite a high level within the government, if not the highest. Yeah, because realistically, like in these kind of top heavy or like systems of government where the president controls everything, no little uh, official is going to get away with such a large fraud. So 2009, um, he then gets arrested uh, as a result of his work in, in uncovering all of this and he's arrested on charges of collusion to commit tax fraud and he was held in a pre-Russian trial det- detention facility for 358 days. Yeah, and that's because under, <laughs> under Russian law uh, you're allowed to be held in pre-trial detention for up to one year mm-hmm. and then they have to release you or charge you in court. That's right. So during this period he developed a number of medical conditions including gallstones, pancreatitis and inflamed gallbladder but he didn't receive the proper medical treatment and he died eight days just before the maximum period of incarceration without, without trial was reached, as Alexa was mentioning. So he was eight days away, and then mysteriously he dies in prison just before they're required to release him. And what was interesting is during his imprisonment, he kept trying to get doctors to see him, and the prison, the prison officials would either refuse, and they weren't, would usually refuse, and they would only be forced to because other prisoners would start rioting in his, in his cause. And then the doctor would come and they'd, be, they'd say, oh, you're fine. Or their other favorite thing to say to him was, is you should have gotten medical treatment before you came to prison. What we're still, though, I think there's, look, it's, it's unsubstantiated. There are some contentions around this particular fact, but there is um, a bit of evidence to suggest that he was actually beaten. So rather than going to the emergency department when it was quite critical, was that he was actually being beaten by guards with batons. Um, and they essentially beat him until he did pass away. So I mean, there's... There's a, there's a level of brutality, but surely um, if someone has been suffering with those sort of ailments, which aren't insignificant in the first place, and untreated for such a long time, it, it, there seems to be quite a bit of uh, aggression to still continue beating someone in that state. But Yeah, a yeah, UN-appointed human rights investigation found that uh, Magnitsky had been beaten shortly before his death, and that was actually a contributing factor to him eventually dying. So I think 
when you look at the timeline, it's pretty clear that he was in there for his work in that, uh, you know, that, that tax fraud and his death coinciding with that date of um, being well, needing to be released or put on trial is massively suspicious. What's interesting as well is that Magnitsky didn't set out to be a you know, corruption activist. He set out believing in the Russian justice system, saying that you know, if the facts are so obviously present, the government will have to respond and you know, do the right thing by the laws that it set. And I think every time he kept getting hit down by the Russian establishment... And it kind of like, he still didn't lose his faith in justice, which I think is quite like, you know, a powerful symbol that, you know, the whole system's against you, yet you still, you know, sit there writing your appeals. Trying to play the game. Yeah, trying to play the game. So, so I think this squarely brings us to the next part of, uh, I'm sure what you're wondering, which is what is the Magnitsky Act? Um, I'm sure some of you have heard about a Magnitsky Act that several countries uh, have adopted similar legislation. But the original legislation did come from the United States and it really was born of the idea, I guess, that we need to be able to hold to account people who have done corruption. And the problem, obviously, in trying to fight corruption in countries that are inherently corrupt is that while you might be able to get some of the smaller corruption cases off the ground, the corruption is so systemic and endemic in the country, it's very difficult to break the true corruptive forces uh, that exist. And what was identified particularly by the lawmakers and Bill Barada and others who lobbied during this period in the US for an act was really that perhaps the best way to hurt uh, people who have um, have been a part of these sort of you know, shady dealings and criminal activity to, to acquire these funds, all were basically storing these funds in what they considered safe havens. And that's not probably like tax havens, but actually storing it in Western countries. So spending their money in buying houses and real estate, buying you know, yachts, but buying things in countries like in most of Western Europe, the US and other places. Yeah. And there's and, famous areas like Brighton Beach in New yeah. York. You've got Hyde Park in London, yeah. where all these Russian oligarchs have bought million dollar apartments. And it's how they move their money out of Russia and into like a safe financial system. And so as part of that, the best way, uh, beyond all that, not only were they investing their monies into the West, but they were also taking their children and putting them in expensive schools in the West. They were, um, you know, having their wives go on trips, you know, for shopping or their mistresses going for shopping trips and, you know, um, and I guess, you know, celebrating, I guess, the, the wealth, celebrating their wealth in the West. And so the idea behind the act primarily was to have the ability um, to actually identify individuals that are most likely, well, yeah, that there is evidence that they have made human rights abuses to acquire their, you know, their funds or other criminal activity to acquire their funds, and the ability to freeze that money within the U.S. or freeze those uh, or restrict their entry and their ability to travel to Western countries. And what I think is really important about this legislation was it was very much a bipartisan effort. It was not by any stretch of the imagination a partisan effort in the U.S. It wasn't a Democrat or Republican. Effort. It was passed the actual uh, in the Senate. It passed 90, 92 to four, um, which is quite an amazing result. Basically unanimous. <laughs> yeah, um, and so as I said, it was this, uh, it was signed by Barack Obama in December, um, and then after that, uh, probably a few years later, and then twenty sixteen, uh, there were some amendments made and further subsequent act made to globalize its effect. So the idea was that by twenty sixteen, 
the the ability was to actually um, not just specifically certain countries, but in any country, um, the U.S. could choose um, to identify individuals that they saw breaking uh, uh, guilty of human rights offences or suspected very heavily of human rights offences to um, be able to block their ability, freeze their assets, block their ability to travel to the U.S. Um, and also. Uh, do their best to um, encourage other countries to do the same. And so from that initial act in the US, uh, there was uh, obviously a concerted effort uh, to evangelize that other Western countries adopt similar measures. Um, and certainly the UK uh, did that the same thing and Canada also ratified. Well, I think this brings us to Putin's response once the act was introduced. Yeah, so look, uh, it's interesting. It's an interesting time. So the this particular act was drafted in uh, June of 2012, and only literally less than a month later, um, Vladimir Putin uh, ascended to his third term as president of Russia, um, succeeding after a bit of a hiatus with uh, Medvedev. Dmitry Medvedev uh, taking over uh, from a constitutional perspective <laughs> for some time. Um, and one of his first acts as he was president was to make a formal response to what was not yet a formal um, ratified law in the US. It was, you know, there was, there was sanction activity that was happening in a similar vein, but it wasn't actually officially passed as Magnitsky Act yet. Yeah, so Putin came out and said that in response to the proposed Magnitsky Act, uh, he was banning American citizens from adopting Russian children. The sad thing is, is that what American couples were doing is they were adopting Russian children that had disabilities and basically had no hope of being adopted in Russia. And they were trying, they were taking them to America for a better life. And what's interesting when we talk about the uh, whole adoption of Russian children, I'm sure for a lot of people listening, there's uh, a situation that involved adoption of Russian children that also involved Trump's election campaign in 2016. So in 2016, there was a scandal involving Trump Tower and the fact that Donald Trump Jr. met with uh, lawyers who effectively were representing the Russian government. And while this in itself is not a scandal, um, it wasn't declared um, as, as a foreign uh, meeting. And therefore, that's where the hot water happened a little bit later. But interestingly enough, there was discussion around adoption and that, you know, that really all they were talking about was um, you know, restoring the ability for Americans to adopt Russian babies and that this was all a very goodwilled discussion. But uh, for most commentators who understand and are informed on the situation, this was really just code for speaking about the Magnitsky Act. And um, as we talked about in 2012, since 2012, and onward, uh, it's been a, uh, one of the key priorities of the Russian foreign policy is, is really to remove the Magnitsky Act, um, or at least destroy its effectiveness uh, in the US and abroad. So, you know, in that Russian law, they also banned uh, the activity of political active nonprofit organizations from receiving money from American citizens or organizations. So another disturbing aspect of this is that um, the law itself from the very beginning and, and continues to have quite a bit of power, powerful lobbying happening um, against it, um, against initially it passing and then against uh, the ability to keep the law effective uh, in these countries. And we're not talking about obscure companies and lobbyists. We're talking about companies like Goldman Sachs lobbying on behalf of, I guess, uh, against the, the Magnitsky Act. And as part of that, they would argue that um, they're looking at 
this idea that you know this doesn't serve business interests and things like that. And one of the responses to that from Anna Boschetsikaya, uh, who was an assistant director for the Atlantic Council um, Eurasia Center, she said there is something troubling about a business lobbying against Magnitsky. It raises questions about whether this company cares about promoting good practices. Um, or whether it wants to ingratiate itself with the Kremlin at any cost. And so obviously, um, when we talk about the rise of Russia, and certainly, you know, um, uh, Bill Browder and um, Hermitage Capital rode the success of that rise of Russia in terms of its economy, um, people obviously don't, uh, businesses don't always want to be cut out. So there's always going to be a challenge against these sort of, legis- these sort of legislative actions where there's people that will fight against those interests. Yeah, and we can um, see that in a modern day parallel as well with the actions that the US Senate is taking against China with American companies lobbying against that because no one wants to lose out on markets. Yeah, and, and look, I think um, what's quite important is that, I mean, this is a tool that's now gone beyond just the, the scenario of Russia and, and particular that that was a focus of the original act perhaps um and even with the instance of jamal khashoggi and the brutal killing of jamal khashoggi um this act has been used now to uh sanction particular individuals and not punish the entire economy of a country but particular individuals that they know were involved in that particular you know offensive killing to try and uh, restrict their ability and punish them specifically um and so from that perspective it makes it quite a powerful tool and I think as well, as we look towards, I guess, the Australian experience and, and the potential laws that could come into effect in Australia, um, an Australian expatriate jurist, uh, Jeffrey Robinson, um, actually described the Act as one of the most important new developments in human rights, uh, particularly because it actually is an effective way to sanction people um, that aren't necessarily the masterminds, but those who are you know, leading activity or helping activity or turning a blind eye to activity. And like in most situations of the law, it's not just action that you can be guilty of, you can be guilty of omission. And I think that's a really important accountability uh, situation. But again, I think what all this experience teaches us is, um, and particularly with Donald Trump coming in to make some changes to how the law is operating in the US. Um, in 2017, he, in, in, um, he issued a memorandum that basically gave control of the sanctioning power uh, to the Secretary of Treasury and then gave the, um, the visa power to the Secretary of State. Um, this could be used very, very well, but obviously there's a potential to turn the blind eye as a, as a government of the US if they wanted to, to certain activity, but then punish different countries for their activity too. So I think um, these sort of leg- this sort of legislation is an amazing uh, thing to have, uh, but it also needs to have checks and balances like any other piece of legislation to make sure that it's used correctly and, and, and justly. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, you know, you don't want anyone to have too much power because um, abuse of power or abuse of rights is what got us in this mess in the first place, if you think about it. Uh, but, Justin, you mentioned that juror who said that this legislation would be a really important development for Australia. And uh, as it stands now, Australia already has particular leg- legislation in place that allows the government to cancel visas to restrict access into Australia but as yet it doesn't have the ability to freeze assets of those people that are trying to arrive in so if Australia was to implement this Magnitsky Act it would be a major step forward in being able to respond and show its support for the ideals behind this act. Another thing that um, someone mentioned, I know I don't remember if it was you, Alexa, or you, Sten, but you said that one of the main advantages of this legislation was that it 
allowed the government to sanction individuals rather than nation states. And that would be really important because you're not punishing the ordinary people. They're not trying to cripple a, a country's economy now, but rather focusing on individuals that have taken part or, like you mentioned earlier, not taken any action against these human rights abuses. But one quote from uh, Jeffrey that we mentioned earlier was that it's a way of getting at the Auschwitz train drivers who make a little bit of money from human rights abuses and generally keep it under the radar. So the whole point is that we shouldn't just be aiming at just human rights abuses, but also people that took part in it, even in like an indirect way. Um, so Browder wasn't able to get justice for his, his friend Magnitsky in Russia. And he thought, you know, I, I want to try and, and get justice for him everywhere else and make sure that what he did is known everywhere else. And so he went to um, some senators in the US and he said, this happened, what do you think if we impose these sanctions because of what's happened? And then when I think was it the general public or other senators had heard about um, the sanctions that he wanted to impose, they said, don't just, let's not just make it about Magnitsky, let's make it about all human rights abusers. Like the word human rights abuse, like the phrase human rights abuse gets thrown around quite easily. And I think a lot of people assume like human rights abuses means like committing genocide or like ethnic cleansing, but it can also just be like general police brutality and there not being any accountability to it. And it doesn't even have to be just against multiple like people or a large number of people it can just be against one person. They, they've been deprived of their human rights. And just like Magnitsky had uh when he was in prison he was deprived of his right to medical treatment and he was pretty much forced to die in prison for his actions but you mentioned police force as well and as i was doing research for this story i looked up the submissions that were made to the human rights subcommittee of the joint standing committee on foreign affairs defense and trade so this committee was charged with putting together submissions and implementing this act in Australia. And so 144 submissions were made to this inquiry uh, from like heaps of different people. So Bill Browder made one, a whole bunch of different religious organisations and associations did. Uh, other European countries that had already passed legislation in their countries had made submissions. And interestingly, a few from China and Hong Kong had also made uh, comments and submissions. And when you mention the police force, it... it yeah, everyone remembers the, the massive, like, riots and protest in Hong Kong. Okay, so, like, all the human rights abuses that um, the police force were inflicting on the people in the streets. And one of these submissions mentioned the fact that one of the advantages of having this Magnitsky Act is that it um, targets individuals. And so uh, that protects, in a globalised world, countries that don't want to offend or you know, damage their relations with other countries. So China is a really, really big, like, financial partner to Australia. We have a lot of trade agreements and, you know, the, we're really closely intertwined. And so for us to then say, oh, we want to sanction China as a whole, we would, like, really, really... Suffer like, greatly from yeah. it. Like, a whole economy pretty much wraps around China's uh, economy as well. And so, like Brianna's mentioning, if we enact it just as one whole uh, country, in a sense, rather than individuals, then, yeah, it completely ruins Australia, in a sense. 
And I think the genius of it specifically is that it really hurts them where it hurts them the most. Uh, the stories that came after uh, the Magnitsky Act came into force and I guess the whole investigation was the people that actually had profited from that $230, um, uh, $230 million, actually they, the stuff they bought was ridiculous. I mean, some of them yeah, bought, re- built new mansions for $20 million and spent money in crazy places and invested in foreign real estate and, and bought in the palm in Dubai where no one wanted to buy anything. That palm has been sitting pretty much vacant as a dream with luxurious properties on the water. Uh, so restricting this sort of class of person who wants to have access to the world and be uh, have the world as their oyster because of their wealth, having these sort of laws shut their ability to access parts of that global economy really hurts you know the point of everything they're trying to do um, and it does punish them in a way that um, yeah at least holds into some account yeah and targeting their ego is probably a better way to like at least try to influence their behavior than just doing general sanctions on their country but, but it goes goes further than that so part of how this works I guess in countries that have uh, a cooperation a level of corruption where the state helps these sort of organized criminal activities to go on there's a level of immunity or impunity that happens because that government says, we won't stop you from doing it. We won't persecute you. We'll protect you. You can put your money offshore somewhere safe and you can have all the life you want. Whereas this shows that there's still a risk to doing these sort of activities, that there's still a consequence. And I think that in itself is immensely important. Yeah, I was going to touch uh, touch on something um, that, Brianna, you mentioned how... um Sorry, not Brianna. Alexa, you mentioned how when Magnitsky was uh, you know, asking for medical help, they should have asked him he should have done that before he went to prison. Um, I think it's important to remember that he actually hadn't gone to prison. He was in pretrial detention. And so I know in the West and in a lot of countries now globally, we have this idea that people are innocent um, until they're proven guilty. But from this case, you can see that, that that idea was just very, very thin and almost non-existent because they had already deemed him guilty in their eyes. They were already treating him as if he was guilty when he, in fact, hadn't even gone to trial yet. So that's another issue you can see starting to rise up where this whole thing of you know judicial process and people actually going on to trial is kind of slipping away in you know, some countries but there wasn't really even evidence of, of that they really were going to persecute him for a crime i mean the whole point and their whole uh, in the entire time he was in prison was to try and get him to retract his statements about what, what actually had happened yeah because so, hadn't they charged him as being a director of one of the companies and he wasn't even working for hermitage capital at that time like he was still like either at uni or like looking for a job um i I remember somewhere they said he was actually charged after his death yeah he was posthumously convicted of something wasn't he yes but like looking at the act now um it's not just uh all these high-ranking officials in a sense that australia can persecute uh like the us and canada have done but you can also like they could also persecute lower officials. So, in the case of Pugninsky, you could persecute uh, most of the prison guards uh, and people that treated him poorly in those prisons. It's not just all these high-ranking officials that uh, forced him in, uh, forced him to be captured and be charged under false uh, charges. Yeah, and if Australia passes this law, I think that completes the whole like Five Eye Alliance because then. Australia, the UK, Canada, America, or New Zealand is all we're missing. With the success so far with the Magnitsky Act, there have been attempts to 
uh, implemented into other countries. And for example, Ukraine did attempt in December 2017 to introduce it into parliament. But however, it was quickly tabled in 2018 and it was then later removed from the legislative agenda. But Australia also did attempt even earlier compared to now by Michael Danby. He introduced the bill, but it quickly died that session anyway. So there have been attempts in other countries to uh, fight human rights abuses and corruption. And so with Australia's revival in the Magnitsky Act, I think it should give hope to other countries to also implement it and to fully implement it and prevent all these abuses from happening. Yeah, because as soon as their money gets cut off in the West, they'll have to start investing it in dodgy countries, which I don't think they want to do. Yeah, and they can't really keep their riches in their well. home country. Yeah. So does this affect like tiny countries like Luxembourg and all those ones? San Marino? So yeah, all these tax havens. It's like the same like with Ukraine. Like Cyprus is in the top five investors in the Ukrainian economy. And that's because like all the Ukrainian oligarchs pump their money back into Ukraine via Cyprus. Well, country like San Marino, I know like the, the number one revenue is um, like tax, corporate tax stuff. So like that country could essentially collapse. Or like Jersey and Guernsey, they're both safe havens with their low income corporate taxes. So they've already implemented it as well. And it's not just uh, in a, an attempt to prevent companies from uh, putting their money into these safe havens, but rather it's trying to prevent companies that are working with known human rights abusers and prevent these abusers from continuing to abuse and still profiting off it. Brianna emphasized, and I think we've, we've, we've obviously talked about how the idea of the Magnitsky Act is really to look at being able to persecute individuals and not necessarily state actors. But I think the other point that's worth mentioning when, we, when Australia considers this is that the landscape for how state actors work has changed dramatically over time. And one of the ways that uh, these, I guess, the, the oligarchy in the Russian example and in other countries um, where there are high levels of corruption, there is the ability for the state to enrich their their populace, so to enrich these oligarchs with money. And it's very regular for them to then be instructed to fund certain activities. So a lot of the lobbying that happened against the Magnitsky Act was funded by Russian oligarchs. Um, and presumably, it's assumed that that money, that was instructed to happen on behalf of the Russian government. But of course, that that new landscape, that complexity and that granularity in how states now use other, other uh, individuals to actually you know, advance their own um, or you know, companies to advance their own um, agendas um, needs uh, needed a, a radical rethinking of how, you know, um, I guess the global community can counteract that. And I think these sort of the, the these Magnitsky style acts are very a very important step towards that. It was really interesting because I was watching a video of um, one of the American senators, one of the original senators that. Uh, Browder had gone to with his proposal he was making an address in parliament and um, talking about this bill and then you scroll down to like the YouTube videos the comments and legit like half of them were people hating on it and then um, other uh, like another part of the comment section was people hating on the haters and saying oh you know Russia's spending a lot of money to like make people comment on these videos 
um, against them and, and trying to, like you said, just stand further their agenda by using, you know, internet trolls. And I, I think that's just a greater reaction and, and reflection of how the internet has democratized everyone's voices. Um, no longer is there just the big media conglomerates that control what news is spread. But in the same way, um, it also creates complexity because it means if, if voices are democratized, if you can manipulate enough voices, you can spread a lot of narratives in a way that perhaps, you know, traditional fact-based, research-based journalism um, would dismiss a lot more quickly. Yeah, and I think that leaves us to when Australia, when the Australian Parliament hopefully does consider this bill in the future, that, you know, they'll take into account, like, the huge impact that this bill will have globally and also, you know, highlighting the fact that Australia is a responsible middle power and that it takes its position as like, you know, a regional leader and even sometimes a global leader quite seriously. So it's good to see that what started as an injustice against one person, Magnitsky and his uh, tragic death has now turned into a you know, global framework to keep human rights abusers and their state sponsors in check and actually bring them to justice and make them accountable for the things that they're responsible for. Recently, there have been protests against a proposed amendment to redefine, in a sense, the Ukrainian language law to allow for Russian schools to exist at past the new uh, by the upcoming deadline. So, do you want to explain what's this amendment about, Alexa? Thanks, Andre. So, yeah, this all stems to the proposed law or number two three six two by Maxim Buzhansky of. President Zelensky 7 of the People Party and what his law aims what his proposed amendment aims to do is to allow Russian schools to continue to exist in Ukraine past 2020 which was when they were meant which is when they're meant to swap over to teaching in Ukrainian and having Russian as an elective subject for students to continue to study in if they so wish to. So when I was reading up about this, I thought it was interesting to compare this to like schools in Australia, um, because I know here we have we have electives here, but because English is our official language, all our schools are taught in English. So it would make no sense to let's say Ashfield Boys High randomly is like, oh yeah, let's start teaching all our, our whole syllabus in Dutch. Like, it, it doesn't make sense because in Ukraina, if you are going to a uh, government-funded school, then your syllabus should be taught in the language, well, the state language, which is Ukrainian. Now, I know there's a lot of talk about, oh, this is discrimination against uh, Russian speakers and Russian people, but it would still allow Russian to be a additional language to be taught. And I'm sure, like, private Russian schools, like we have Yuki schools here, I'm sure we have Vietnamese schools here in Australia, if someone wants to learn Russian, you can learn Russian. It's not stopping the language being spoken. But I think that it's because it would classify Russian as an additional language. That would be what the big problem is, because there are people in Ukraine that want Russian to be recognized as, you know, an official language alongside with Ukrainsky, which just doesn't make sense. Yes, yeah, so the law also, um, the proposed amendment by Buzhansky also aimed to scrap the new requirement that um, 80% of a school syllabus should be taught in Ukrainian and that his 
logic was is that school should be able to free be free to choose what language they teach their students in and parents should be free to choose what language their children learn in however the law didn't amend any other aspect of Ukraine's language law so these students are basically being turned into second class citizens because Ukraine's central exams at the end of school are all conducted in Ukrainian and so is every university course so these students when they finish school would not be able to attend university it seems to me that when you start to try and break down you know what is the unanimously accepted language or the state language that really you know you're going to start breaking down the country because if you are allowing schools to teach their syllabus in different ways then there is no uniformity across the country so if someone is trying to apply for a job in western ukraina uh, they're going to struggle if you know if places in western ukraina are heavily ukrainian focused whereas places in west uh, eastern ukraina are heavily russian focused and that's really going to start breaking things down i also think that uh, you don't really ever see this in other countries where the language like the language taught in schools isn't the state language right what they're trying to po uh, propose here because in russia they're not going to let any other language but russian be taught why should Ukraine be forced to subjugate itself to teach Russian as a school language, really? Yeah, and the whole politics of language in Ukraine has been going on since Ukraine declared its independence. And I think it's most visibly seen, for example, in Kiev's metro system. So when Ukraine first became independent, the metro announcements were only done in Russian. Then after a few years, they went to Ukrainian and Russian. Then there was a period of Ukrainianization, so then they went to Ukrainian only, and now it's Ukrainian English kind of highlighting Ukraine's orientation of going to the West and being, you know, more tourist-friendly. I know you say going to the West, but it's just being more Ukrainian. That too. Which is, yeah, like the <laughs> fundamental important part. And I think the other thing, when you look at a law like this, you obviously have to go back to why and how it's been implemented and what the reasoning is. And obviously, when we've talked about Ukraine before and those who visited know that the Russian language is hardly marginalised in Ukraine. Generations of Ukrainians spoke Russian uh, when they were working professionally, as we mentioned on this podcast before. A lot of professions and engineering professions and other academic professions were mostly in Russian language only. Textbooks were Russian at the time too. And so the, the idea here is really for Ukraine to protect the Ukrainian language and to promote the Ukrainian language and build the proper um, eco, I guess, ecosystem or the proper foundations for the Ukrainian language going forward. And I think what we're saying, what, what the, the, the idea of the law is really is saying, well, yes, you can have some other language tuition for some of your subjects, just like in a lot of countries there are, but a good proportion or 80% or 70% you know, needs to be Ukrainian. This issue is always brought up by pro-Russian politicians around election time. So Ukraine is heading to the polls in late October and... It's basically to try and motivate their base to come out and vote by saying, look at me, like I support your language. So, you know, I'm definitely going to defend all your interests. And it basically, um, it was summed up really well by a Ukrainian political analyst called Vitaly Portnikov saying that the aim of the pro-Russian parties is to create a segregated language ghetto of people who won't be able to attend university or attain higher education and thus they'll be able to create a stable voting block for themselves to keep them at least in parliament and to form some kind of pro-Russian element in Ukraine's body politic. However, if they can't succeed now, 
it's probably going to fail in the next 10 to 15 years as the older generation dies off and this younger generation starts to learn Ukrainian. So it's their last shot in a way. I'd say they're really like playing with fire with that because Putin has justified his invasion as, you know, he needs to protect Russian speakers. Well, that's their whole point, though. Well, there there you go. Because they're (laughs) they're they're, the pro-Russian parties. Yeah, but if they're... I guess it's one thing to be pro-Russian, but in that case, they're just basically inviting Putin to just come in and take those parts. But that's why these parties exist. Okay, well, (laughs) there's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. It's just all come in and take our land. And I think we should mention here that um, whilst the Ukrainian language law promotes the study of Ukrainian and tries to standardise that all students learn it, it does leave room for national minorities, for example, in Western Ukraine, like the Hungarian, Polish, Romanian minorities, to continue to study in their language. And the law also states that um, you can study in your native language up until grade five, and then the proportion of Ukrainian classes increases up until that 80% threshold. So thus, you know, it lets kids learn in their native language. However, it aims to prepare them to sit their final exams and join, like, Ukrainian society as an adult. See, I would argue that middle ground probably isn't good because you have kids that have grown up, you know, being taught in one language, and then when they're starting to swap to the other language, Ukrainian to them will seem like an additional language to them. And I think that's where having it all Ukrainian when you're going to these government-funded schools is essential because that it te- teaches everyone that this is this is the norm in the country, that everything is Ukrainian, but you have the right to go and speak any other language you want. So that's why this whole thing that it's discriminating against Russians is so wrong because Russians can speak Russian outside of that. They can speak Russian at school. It's just that they're going to be learning in Ukrainian. And so... I yeah I don't see how this well, is discrimination. If they ever got to a point where they were like, oh, you can't speak Russian in a shopping center, and you know, well, we're banning the Russian language being spoken here. I'm going to say that's too far. Well, this law's already compromised because they didn't want to offend all the minorities in Western Ukraine, and even like for example, Hungary, which is a whole nother issue, finds Ukraine's current law too extreme. So you can't please both sides. But the thing is, though, is that Ukrainian language has been suppressed for. 300 years uh, each empire that has ruled either all of ukraine or part of ukraine has tried in some way to oppose the ukrainian language and i think a lot of people don't understand is that ukrainian should be protected uh first rather than trying to protect all the language equally because ukraine has been suppressed the longest has been suppressed the most a lot of attempts have been made to pretty much kill off the ukrainian language and thus Uh, completely destroying the nationality of Ukrainian. Which is why the current law is so important, because it does protect that Ukrainian language and allows, you know, tries to force everyone to learn it at some point. Yeah, so the whole uh, pro-Russian party trying to justify that, oh, this is discrimination against Russian, in a sense, if you look from, obviously, their perspective, it makes sense because their language isn't being taught. But if you look further back, it's actually giving Ukraine an ability to like have some time to actually breathe, expand, and actually being used first uh, rather than Russian being used first. Yeah, everywhere. it's like a priority language. Priority yeah. language should be Ukrainian, then Russia is your additional language. Yeah. yeah, and going off Justin's point, like when I was studying in Ukraine in 2017, I remember kids were like so amazed that they'd finally published like textbooks for certain subjects in Ukrainian. And I was like, really, guys? Yeah, and going back to Andre's point, I think, uh, you know, there's this narrative that's been made by 
the these the pro-Russian parties saying that oh yeah the Russian language is being marginalised. Putin uses that as an excuse for invading eastern Ukraine as well. But ultimately, the language that has been marginalised, as they were saying, is Ukrainian for such a long period of time, and and even still today, I mean, the language, although it is, you know, thriving more than it has been previously, it's still uh, there's still a lot of um, mixed vocabulary and things like that that do still make the struggle of even having people speak what is modern day Ukrainian, isn't you know is is a debate in itself in terms of you know some of the words that have been influenced by. I guess, a long use of Russian in, in Ukraine as well. So I think ultimately um, it's a complex issue, but I think in any other country where there's an official language, there would never be a dispute that that language should be the dominant language of education for children, the dominant language for business, dominant language for professional use. And I don't think there's anything in this law that you know goes contrary to that, obviously, that supports that, but also doesn't really infringe on the rights of anyone to speak other languages um, and learn them. This week in the news, Ukraine conducts its annual naval exercise codenamed Sea Breeze with the US and other NATO partners. Australia finally joins the ranks of other diaspora countries, having been granted visa-free access. Ukraine appoints a new governor of the National Bank of Ukraine. It remains to be seen if he will keep the reforms of his predecessor. And finally this week, Ukraine fell victim to a terrorist attack in the city of Lutsk. Fortunately, there were no casualties. Despite political norms, President Zelensky spoke with the terrorists and achieved a positive outcome. Tune in next week as we break down this story along with President Zelensky's first year in office. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter or our website, ukilifereport.com. <laughs>